Well, let's read 2 Peter 3. <clears throat> Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them to remind, uh, as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the, the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the commands given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, the day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt, melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Well, when it comes to uh, winning arguments, kids are geniuses, aren't they? I was chatting with some of you about this uh, infallible example the other day, you know how it goes. I know you are, you said you are, but what am I? Brilliant. Unbeatable. And if a back and forth ever ensues from that, you know, with the words, you know, am not R2, am not R2, all you have to do is add a big number and you win. You know, am not times 100... Bam. Or even better, R2 times infinity. <laughs> Exceptional debating skills. Don't lie, deep down we're all wishing we could still argue like that, don't we? Oh, if only I could say that when somebody's arguing with me. Sometimes I think we get pretty close to using those methods. But my all-time favourite has to just be the old clap the hands over the ears and yell la 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 until the other person gives up and walks away. Because if, they, if you can't hear them, well, there's no argument, is there? It's the best move in the playbook. And those who have seen Dumb and Dumber know exactly what I'm talking about. But in many ways, this, this is exactly what Peter is accusing the false teachers of doing in the early church. He says in verse 5 that they deliberately forget. They deliberately forget. That is, they, they choose to forget. They kind of force uncomfortable truths out of their minds and 
and claim ignorance. In regards to God's judgment and the second coming of Jesus, they just clap their hands over their ears and yell la 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 until the end of their days. And if we're honest, much of the world around us does the same, don't they? Right up until the grave, there is this chosen ignorance of, of anything that's transcendent, anything that's beyond what's right here in front of me. And I wonder if that's you this morning. When religious people talk about heaven or hell or life after death, do you block your ears and claim ignorance? Because Peter urges us, yes, he's talking primarily to Christians, but he's urging us to choose awareness over ignorance, to choose remembering over forgetting. In the second half of chapter 1, and then in the first half of chapter 3, six times he uses uh, words and phrases like, remind you, refresh your memory, remember these things, recall the words, do not forget... Because he really, really wants us to deliberately remember instead of deliberately forgetting. And this is especially the case when a lot of time is going by. You know, time is going by, it's easy to sort of just forget about things and just kind of live normal lives. Early Christians thought that Jesus might come back within just a few years after he had left. But now decades are going past. And so there's this temptation to forget and to doubt and to just not worry about it. And then there's these scoffers in the church, these people who feed the doubts, as it shows in verse 4. What do they say? Where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Same old, same old. And again, it was the same in the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah. They keep saying to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it now be fulfilled. Or in Isaiah, they say, let God hurry, let Him hasten His work so that we may see it. Let it approach, let it come into view so that we may know it. They're mocking. Or in Ezekiel, son of man, what is this proverb that you have in the land of Israel The days go by and every vision comes to nothing. And so this is the argument that Peter tackles in in chapter 3 of his letter. And how relevant it is for us, isn't it? We who are 2,000 years beyond the first coming of Jesus. Centuries later than the early church. They were struggling with decades. We are centuries beyond that. How much encouragement this passage can bring as we wait and we yearn and we long for Jesus' return and we long for His resolve of all the problems that face us. And so there are three arguments that Peter uses to rebuff these scoffers of his time. And they all centre on the eternal, infallible, authoritative Word of God. And so the first is that God's Word is a creative Word. Look again at verse 5. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's Word, the heavens 
came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And so here God is like one of those powerful bosses who just say something and it gets done. They say the word and it's carried out without a doubt. But instead of it being through like company minions who do every bidding, it happens through His word itself, through the supernatural power of His word. So in Genesis chapter 1, He speaks, let there be light, and there is light. Creation bursts forth. And John, he testifies to this act when he says in his gospel that through the word, the word personified, all things were made, and without the word, nothing was made that has been made. God speaks and it happens. And so for those who thought and acted like creation just kind of came about automatically, you know, perhaps from like a big bang or something similar, Peter is saying to them that no, it came about by God's intentional authoritative word. He spoke and it happened. And for those who thought and acted like creation was just always there, it's always been there, it's just you know, we can't know since time immemorial or even forever there's been creation. Peter reminds them that no, it was ultimate change. At one point, there was nothing. And then by God's word, there was everything. Ultimate change. We do, want, we do not want to forget that God made everything out of nothing. Things have not just continued on since forever. He created time itself. He is above time. There is no power greater than that. And if you believe that things have just always been, or that it's not worth thinking about, well, we want to tell you that actually it's essential how we came to exist, how the universe came to exist. <clears throat> that means everything. If it was just random, then everything is meaningless. But if it's through the purposeful, intentional Word of God, well, then it is very, very meaningful. By the way, the mention there of water uh, out of water and by water, it likely refers to Genesis 1, verse 6 and verse 9. Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate uh, water from water, which creates the sky. So there's water below and there's water above, there's the sky in the middle. And let water be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear, so that there's, there's the land. Out of water and by water. So, basically, the means of creation is the Word of God. The agent of creation, what He uses, is water. And the result of creation is the heavens and the earth, the land and the sky. And these waters become even more significant in the next point, which is that God's Word is a judicial word. It's a judicial word. Read verses 6 and 7 with me. <clears throat> By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. 
By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So now we've got God being likened to a supreme judge who sits there on the bench and pronounces judgment. And his word is the final say in the proceedings. His word must be carried out. But again, instead of minions of the penal system, this happens supernaturally. His very word can destroy, can cause flood, can cause fire, can cause anything else that he desires. By speaking, he can destroy the universe just as he created it. Now, unfortunately, the NIV's choice of translation here doesn't capture the point very well. Uh, The original text in verse 6 actually says, by these, and that's it, by these, the world was destroyed. And so it could mean the waters, plural, that are mentioned in the previous verse, but it could also mean the word and the water together. The word and the water together. And I think that's much more likely because of verse 7, where it then picks up and says, by the same word. So it's the word and the water that God uses to judge. God's word, which powerfully creates, also supremely judges. It separated the waters to create the sky, like this. And it receded waters to create the land. And then what did it do? It brought forth the waters. It joined them back up. So when God flooded the earth, He opened the heavens, and this separation was closed over again, and water flooded the earth from top down. But also, the springs burst forth, and it came up from the land itself, and water was joined. And by that, He destroyed the earth. And I think it's worth uh, mentioning the mirror of this when Israel crossed the Red Sea. So God separated the waters and created dry land so that they could walk through, and it was redemption. And we'll come back to that one. But then what did he do? He joined the waters back up to cover the Egyptians and drown them, and it was judgment. But just like we saw two weeks ago, God at some point switches from water to fire for future judgment. After the flood, he promised to never send a planet covering deluge ever again. And so his next act of judgment in the story of redemption is that on Sodom and Gomorrah. And what does he do? He rains fire down from the sky. And Peter is saying that that's the fire that this earth is reserved for, that will come again. As verses 10 and 12 say, the heavens will be destroyed by fire with a roar. And the elements will be destroyed and they will melt in the heat. Everything will be laid bare. The whole earth will be purged by fire. This is the fire that Revelation talks about to describe the condemnation of the devil and of his angels and of his followers. It is a destructive, purging, annihilating fire. And so here's the scoffers saying that everything has been the same old thing since creation. Nothing ever changes. It's just one day, one week, one month, and on it goes. And Peter's saying, well, what about the flood? What about 
when every person was wiped from the face of the earth and God effectively started again. With a word, he created the heavens and the earth. With a word, he demolished it and started again. Is that not another epic change in history? And what about all the other acts of judgment by God's judicial word? You know, Sodom and Gomorrah, Egypt, Canaan, Israel's destruction, Judah's exile, Assyria, Babylon. The list goes on. The judgment of the cross. When God poured forth all of his wrath, he has intervened many, many times. Nobody can say that it's just the same old, same old. So if you're a believer here, this is a reminder of how God does indeed step in to judge. He will not let injustice continue forever. He does not ignore sin. And as surely as He sent the flood, He will judge the whole world with fire. And us included. And if you're not a believer, you may be able to ignore God's creative Word, which is a pity, I want to say, because it brings so much joy. But you cannot ignore His judicial Word at least not forever. Instead of choosing ignorance, please, choose awareness. The world will not just tick on forever. Even in science, it's becoming more and more acknowledged, isn't it? It is reserved for fire. But it is also reserved for recreation. It is reserved for recreation. God started again with the flood, that was judgment, but he's going to start again in an even grander way. Peter says it in verse 13, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. A new heaven, a new earth. And this brings us to Peter's third argument, that God's word is a Redemptive word. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. As I hear, God is like the benevolent king, powerful, yet loving. His word is still carried out without question, but it is a word that forgives rebels and saves criminals and rescues those who are condemned. And again, it's not done by minions, it's done by his supernatural word. And even more than that, his word become flesh. John 1 again, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Or Hebrews chapter 1, in the past God spoke to our ancestors 
through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. To those who would say that the days go by and nothing ever changes, here is the greatest, most indisputable argument. Jesus Christ. Nothing changes. Come on. What about when Jesus brought heaven down to earth? What about when He conquered sin and death completely and He smashed the grave to smithereens? What about when He changed history and He flipped the universe on its head? What about when He ushered in a brand new creation? What about when God's Word, Him revealing Himself, when He, when he formed it into a person like us and His glory blasted light into the darkness just like, just as dramatically as when He created light at the beginning? Nothing ever changes. What a joke. Redemption is the greatest change. The washing of rebirth and renewal. Again, water is the symbol, isn't it? By the Holy Spirit generously poured out through Jesus Christ. I mean, think about how epic the change that is creation. Once there was nothing, then there's everything. Think about the epic nature of God's justice when He flooded the whole earth. Redemption is bigger. What Jesus came to do is much, much bigger. And He's ushered in a new creation. And with that huge scope in mind, perhaps we just don't know what patience looks like. We forget about all these epic movements and we think every year it's just more of the same. Nothing ever changes. It's the same old, same old, but God is carrying out huge plans. 2,000 years, it's a pittance. It's nothing. There was more than that before Jesus came to the earth and there's probably going to be more after although we don't know what the exact number is. But to God, it's like five or six days have passed. It's not even a week yet. He created time, and so He can speed it up and He can slow it down as much as He wants to according to His perspective. Thousands of years go by like a day. And God's like, yesterday, I, you know, I created Abraham and we did this stuff. But also, He can make a day last a thousand years. That should encourage us too because God can step into one of our days and, and He can elongate it so that he can, he can help and He can care and He can protect like we would never imagine. And think about the day where somebody comes to know Jesus and there's this day of conversion and, and it's kind of like the whole epic history of redemption is, is mirrored and reflected in that day where somebody is saved. It's incredible. 
Next week, we're going to talk more about our waiting and our patience and what's that look, what that looks like. But today, we just need to stand in awe of the patience and the faithfulness of God. To marvel at it, to remember it, because His patience means redemption. <clears throat> every day that goes by, every year, every decade, every century, every millennia, is about His growing kingdom. That's what it's about. That's what matters. Souls being saved, the lost being found, the broken being restored. If we think nothing changes, what about those who are literally walking into the kingdom right now? As we speak, right at this moment, what about those who are being given brand new hearts? What about those who might still be saved tomorrow or next week or next year or even in a hundred years' time? God's Word keeps going out. It keeps creating. It keeps judging. It's what it does like to people all the time. And it keeps redeeming. Eras come and go. Empires rise and fall. Lives start and end. But God's Word stands forever. It's as Isaiah Chapter 40 reminds us, and you know, go and read the chapter again when you get home, it's so good. He says, the grass withers and the flowers fall. He's talking about human beings. He's talking about princes as well. But the word of our God endures forever. So if you believe in this, the greatest intervention of all time, the gospel of Jesus, keep remembering it. And keep reminding others about it. This is God's Word put into words, into a message, into good news, so that we can communicate it clearly. So we can tell others. Why? Because more and more and more people will be saved before Jesus returns. Fact. Guarantee. And if you don't believe that anything will ever change or that it doesn't matter, I want to urge you to open your eyes to take your hands off your ears and listen to the words of your Father. Because by His Word, He creates, He judges, and He redeems. And trust me when I tell you, you want all three. You want all three. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful word, this wonderful truth about your power, your creation, your justice, your redemption. Lord, passages like these can be overwhelming to us when they talk about the beginning and the end, judgment, salvation, eternity, We confess our minds can't often comprehend it. And it's easier to not think about. 
But as the writer of Ecclesiastes reminds us, our hearts are made for eternity. And we need to know this stuff. And Lord, we want to thank you that you are so much bigger than us. That you are above time itself. And when we feel oppressed by time or we feel stuck or we feel trapped, you are bigger than that. You are patient, you are faithful, and you are compassionate. We thank you that a thousand years are like a day to you, and we cannot forget that your plan is still underway, so more and more people can be saved. Help us to share the good news. We thank you too, Lord, that a day can be like a thousand years. And you can work that many wonders in any one of our days to help us and guide us. Lord, give us comfort and joy in these truths. Help us to celebrate them and also to talk about them with each other, with the world around us. up until the end of our days. Amen. <clears throat> well, in a moment, we're going to sing, uh, finish sorry, with two songs, uh, both really just focusing on Jesus, uh, the Word at the beginning, the one who is our Redeemer, uh, who, is, who has stepped into time in order to save us from time, out of time, and into eternity. Uh, but before we do that, perhaps you can stand as we close with these words from uh, 1 Timothy. Please stand with me now. Paul starts with a, uh, a wonderful encouragement simply to pray and to pray for those in power in our world and, and uh, those around us. And it turns into a beautiful expression of the gospel and the truth of God and His eternity. He says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and it pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. And this has now been witnessed to at the proper time by us and those who come after as we continue to share it. Amen. Why don't we sing what a beautiful name in Christ.